Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Thank you so much for joining us today for Stem Cells at Lunch. Um, very lucky to be joined by Geraldine Jowett, who is a second year, no, final year PhD student at the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine here at King's. So Geraldine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a genuine pleasure. No, we're really excited. And so you've just finished your talk about your work that you're doing in your PhD. Do you want to just summarise that for us, please? Yeah, of course. Um, I've been very lucky in my PhD to have such a fun topic. Um, I was able to use these tiny mini guts in a dish or these organoid models to study the impact of a super rare immune cell type on the intestinal epithelium. So that's like the skin in your gut, essentially. And these immune cells, they accumulate in patients who have uh, inflammatory bowel disease and no one really knew why and no one really knows if they're there because they're causing damage or if they're accumulating because they're responding to something bad that's happening. Um, and I was able to use these tiny little organoid models to kind of tease apart what role they're playing in the body. So it's been very fun and I've been very lucky, both in terms of actually getting results and in the wonderful, wonderful people I've been able to work with. So could you just explain a bit about what an organoid actually is? Um, why are they important? What, what have they allowed scientists to do that they couldn't do before? It's a great question. I mean, honestly, when I was starting my PhD, we had this five-minute speed dating-like event with a bunch of different lab heads who were presenting their research. And when Joanna, who is now my supervisor, presented the organoids, I was absolutely blown away. I'd not heard about them properly yet. And they're just so cool. So basically, an organoid is, it has all the key components that an individual organ has, but in a really controlled environment. For instance, the gut, which is what I study. It's so complicated in the human, like it interacts with the brain, it interacts with the microbiome, which is super complicated in and of itself. It will be completely different depending on the time of day and what someone's eaten or are they smokers or are they old or do they exercise? You know, there's just like all these variables that you can't control. So organoids are great because they keep a lot of the complexity that you need to actually have a relevant disease model, but they give you all the control over those variables. So actually, I was able to only add in this one immune cell that I was interested in. If I'd looked at that in the body, you know, it would have been really hard because there's lots of other immune cells. And if I'd seen an impact, how would I have been able to know that it was from these type one innate lymphoid cells or not? So yeah, so they, they give you all the complexity you want. But they allow you to really control which variables you're looking at. So it's a level of control really is one of the key factors of the organoids that you think is kind of the most important thing about them or one of the most important things about them. Maybe the most important thing is that it, if you're trying to study biomedical diseases, like if you're trying to do research that's going to be translational, a lot of work is done in animal models and I'm not knocking that, and animal models are really important for the work that I do too. 
But the great thing about organoids is you can make models of human disease, which really can like slot in nicely into clinical trials. So you can test drugs and test different like genetic backgrounds in a super relevant model for human disease. And, you know, there are things that animal models can do that you can't do in human models, but it's a fantastic tool for reducing the number of animals that we use, but also for doing things that are actually meaningful. Uh, one of both of our good friends, Pete, said, oh, you know, I think we should just call it quits and say that we're all really, really good at curing mice. And I mean, there's something to be said for that, where if you're trying to study a disease, it is important that you look at a human cell too. And organoids really allow you access. I mean, it's very difficult to look at things in, you know, human bodies based on all of the variables that I was just mentioning. Absolutely. I mean, they sound, we all know that there are problems with animal models and there's this limitation of what can we do in a human system. So organoids sound like they're this perfect middle ground. But is there a danger in, are they too reductionist? Especially when we're looking at complex diseases, is there a danger that you're actually losing out on some of the things that you might have in an animal model? What's, what's the concerns there? That's a fantastic question. I mean, honestly, the field is really moving moving towards this organ on a chip direction where you're trying to add more and more complexity in. So for instance, even in my own model, I had immune cells and intestinal organoids, so like the epithelium and these fibroblasts, which are these supporting cells that just really produce the environment that the cells attach to. And I found that the more things I added in, the more complicated it was to keep the entire system alive where, you know, you have to create a condition that works for all of these cells outside of the body. And sometimes it can get really hard because like if you're changing up, you know, some of the food that you're putting in because a brain cell likes it. But actually, if you add that in, in an uncontrolled way, it really affects the skin cell or whatever, because it's a bit of a catch 22, where to be able to model something in a dish, you kind of first have to have understood it in vivo so it's a you need the other models to inform these and then vice versa and like I think I think it's a tool it's not a replacement in and of itself it just like adds complexity to the things that we're able to do but it's a fantastic tool I do think it's a game changer I mean one of the things that comes to my mind hearing you speak about that and and your research as well is that you are you have these kind of three different compartments so for you you're interested in the epithelium the immune cells and also the kind of uh, mesenchyme, so the supporting cells. Do you did you find it difficult to have your finger in those three pies? Was it did you have to be specialist in three quite different subjects, or did they kind of cross over quite nicely? What was what was your experience with that? Once again, I think that that's a great question, Emily. You're very good at this. One thing that I haven't really addressed yet is what are you actually culturing these cells in? And so one of the parts of my PhD was actually working with chemical engineers who've developed this three-dimensional hydrogel system. So it's like the scaffolding, like what are you actually culturing these cells in? If you just plop them in a, essentially in a dish, that's not really mimicking the environment that you have in a human body. So you're trying to get the stiffness and the adhesion properties and, you know, is the environment degradable or not? And so I was working with this chemical engineer 
who's my primary supervisor. And then I was working with Joanna Nevis, my co-primary supervisor, who's an immunologist. And then I was trying to get a handle on all the matrix remodeling and the microbiome. And I have to admit, when I started out my PhD, I was massively overwhelmed. I really felt like I was a you know jack of all trades, master of none. I felt like I was really just touching on the surface of all these things, but I didn't have the depth of knowledge that you need for a PhD. And you need you need to really understand every element of a field to understand where the gaps in that field are and to be able to help fill them. So I did feel like at the beginning, by having this interdisciplinary project, I was only scratching the surface on all of them. But eventually, I found my niche that like had all three elements in them. And I think that in a way, that's another thing that's going to happen moving forward. So for instance, King's now has the Neuroimmune Welcome Trust program. And that's very interdisciplinary. Like They're now bringing together the immune system and the brain, which are two really complex systems but they're realizing that people are going to have to bang their heads against it and feel useless for a couple of years while they learn the intricacies of the immune system and of the nervous system to be able to bring them together so i think that that's like kind of what's happening across a lot of different fields it's like interdisciplinarity like bringing in different angles is the only way you're going to be able to get this organ on a chip type of complexity um, but I think we have to be very honest about the limitations that that has. Like the times that I've been in rooms and realized that, <laughs> you know, very simple things where a chemical engineer will like just not understand what a cell needs to be alive and will just, you know, use a reagent that just kills all the cells. Whereas I'll come in and be like, yeah, we'll just change the pH and they all have a seizure and they're like, no, you can't that and it's not called ph in the system anyway and you know which is, but it's good like you have to you can't have those conversations if people aren't in the same lab like it doesn't help if you know you read a paper by an engineer and you just scoff at them online and are like oh well this person doesn't know what they're doing like i think it's important for these people to be experts in their field but then come together to create something new yeah i think that's a really really interesting perspective as well and i think you're very right in the way that a lot of kind of funding bodies are now wanting these interdisciplinary projects where you're bringing different people from different specialisms together. But it's really interesting to hear your experience of that firsthand and what that's actually like on a day to day basis. So what were kind of for you, what were some of the defining moments or choices to get you to where you are? So why do you study what you study? And what was your kind of path to that? I've been extremely lucky. Like I'm the classic, like I loved biology since genuinely as long as I can remember. And I was very lucky to have a couple of fantastic biology teachers in high school. And I know they talk about this where someone will decide by the age of like 11, whether or not they think they're going to do science. And I think I can really put myself in that box where I've, I've, I always just loved biology and thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So I went and I pursued a degree in human development on regenerative biology. And I was very lucky that, again, a lot of it's luck, that um, Lee Rubin, who studies the brain and drug discovery and all of these things, um, just, you know, he let me join his lab in my third year and I got to write this thesis. And he really taught me a lot of the principles that I value now. So what I'm talking about when I'm saying you know, human stem cells and organoids, they slot in and they're a part of the 
you know, testing drugs and replacing clinical trials. A lot of that comes from his philosophy. Like he'd worked in pharma and then gone back to academia because he felt like pharma was not, he, I think he worked at Novartis or something. So he'd like experienced firsthand what some of the limitations were. And a lot of what he'll talk about is how billions and billions and billions are spent on drugs and so few of them actually end up working when they you know make it through like almost no drugs make it through clinical trial which is why they end up having to repurpose drugs that have already been approved and so he taught me about you know disease modeling and like the potential of using human stem cells for disease modeling so one thing that kind of strikes me from your story is that you've kind of moved around a lot um so and also as I know you I know you've moved from Germany to the states and then to the UK so how do you think that's kind of shaped your experience how has it been kind of being exposed to those different environments and what impact has that had on the the choices you've made um I definitely think that the different countries I've been in have dramatically shaped what I think of as important um so I grew up in Germany as you mentioned and actually my secondary school teacher I had one teacher who basically from grade seven to ten exclusively taught us how to make beer and how yeast metabolizes wheat to make ethanol it was he was obsessed as much as that's a joke it was a lot of focus on like very like key molecular pathways Whereas in the US, a lot of what I was exposed to, because their healthcare system is completely different, there was a lot of focus on finding treatments for diseases, like small cures and small treatments. Whereas I genuinely feel like in my move to the UK, there's a completely different focus, right? So like for the NHS, if they can give you something once, which is expensive the one time, but then you're cured and then that's it, and they don't have to spend any money on you again, I feel like a lot of the talk here is more about self-therapies and like, you know, how can you just completely nip diseases in the bud? I'm not, again, trying to actually put any value judgment on it because, you know, that's just how the healthcare system there works. It has meant that the kind of things that you see in talks in the US and in the UK and in Germany are totally different. I think it's really helpful to travel around and realize different people have come up with different solutions for answering similar questions. So it's almost like interdisciplinarity, but also internationalism. So that's why I really hope that conferences like ISSCR, which now is moved virtual, will eventually post-pandemic become actual conferences again. Because I think there's something very, very valuable about people from different countries coming together and actually meeting and sharing their values and their focuses and their techniques and their tools. Because that's the only way we can all progress together. So I really hope that we don't become more isolated and restricted to travel within, you know, what, what you can get to by a train. It's always kind of been said by people working in science, one of the lovely things often is how collaborative science is. Um, and that kind of leads on to my next question, which obviously we are recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic. So we are in lockdown. Um so I was wondering how has that, we can't get away without a COVID question, how how has it affected you um, kind of personally and scientifically? And do you think it will have a long-term impact on the way you or those around you work? I mean, personally, I took it very poorly. Um, <laughs> I, um, I was, uh, you know, I'm very lucky again that both my supervisors were extremely patient with me and that 
I have a strong support network and there were lots of people, you know, checking in on me. I feel like it was a meme, check in on your extroverts and all my friends really got the memo. So <laughs> like, I, I, I felt immensely supported and I actually have been able to work on revisions for my paper that I presented today and I was able to, you know, do something like I have been able to do some work from home but like for us I'm not sure what's going to happen when we return like I think some people are going to be able to just go back and pick up their research pretty much where they left off whereas we lost the first three months leading into the pandemic because we were only just getting ready for experiments when we went into lockdown it's going to take us a really long time to get back to where we were in March so actually we're losing you know, an extra three months at the beginning and three months at the end. And then even after that, it's just, it's, it is very hard to know if you're in immunology, you, there's this strange thing where your research has never been more relevant than in a global pandemic. Like, you know, I study a cell type that is the primary response to a viral infection. So technically what I do has never been more important, but it's not, my research hasn't actually been very coronavirus based. So it's a big decision. Like our lab is trying to see whether there's stuff we can do that would help understand coronavirus, which I think is super important. And like, I think it's commendable that people are, you know, tabling what they've been working on to focus on coronavirus. But it doesn't mean what happens to that work that you were doing before. Like, you know, I just really am worried about research that isn't coronavirus research within immunology suddenly getting shelved. Um, I think research needs to keep going. But I, you know, I, I, I haven't, I know as much as everyone else does. I'm also particularly scared because I'm currently writing grants to move into even more pure developmental biology uh so terrible time to be leaving translational research but you know I think you know most people have an appreciation that it's important to keep going some degree of normality in lots of different areas and that includes kind of science and, and research as well um yeah so that actually leads nicely onto what you know the, what are you planning to do next so in terms of your project so what what is there anything that you would like to do with that are there any particular questions you felt left unanswered and also for your career what what would you like to do next kind of short term and long term first I'd like the paper to be actually finalized um then you and I have been working together on some very exciting innate lymphoid cell development projects I'd really like we're using the IPS derived organoid system that we developed for other questions so our supervisors have actually both our second supervisors and primary supervisors are all together on this big kings together grant um which allows us to add all those different areas of complexity into our model it's like moving towards organ on a chip so we uh we want to put in neurons and put in gut microbiome components and I would love to finish those stories um and I was also trying to finish a story on the hydrogel because there's some elements of the chemistry of the hydrogel that you know we, we need to be very specific and careful when communicating it to the field of immunology and then for myself I'm currently very torn because 
everything that we're doing right now is really exciting and it kind of would break my heart to not do it. But I did come into this PhD to acquire skills that I wanted to apply to any like other research questions. So I'm actually really trying to look at germ cell development at the moment and I'm writing grants to get postdoc fellowships to do that. Um, but to do that, I really have to go back into like the pure development of those cells and they're really cool cells. And so they've sparked my interest. So as I was saying at the beginning, if something catches your eye, just go for it. And so I'm trying to follow my own terrifying advice. I think you have to follow what you find interesting, whatever that is. Um truly terrifying and it's really really scary to leave something that you know and people that you know in a field that you've just grown comfortable with to do something else scary potentially inadvisable I don't know maybe we'll come back to this podcast in 10 years and see if my advice actually <laughs> made any sense I have a lot of advice so I don't know if any of it's good thank you so much Geraldine it's been really really good to have you it's been great to hear about kind of your scientific work and also your kind of outside of science life um so thank you so much